This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, in the beginning, the American Football League was a joke. It didn't help that its professional football teams practiced in schoolyards, played in rundown stadiums, and wore bad uniforms. But by its 10th and final year, the AFL had more than earned the respect of both the NFL and the sports world. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right. Papers. Check. By the way, I can't I can't take credit for the paper rattling. My brother used to do this a lot. <laughs> NFL historians, this show is not for you. This is for those who don't know as much. So we are here to enlighten. But please, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm always here to learn. The Behind the Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr. Billy Up Sports. Billy Up Sports Podcast Network. Go to BillyUpSports.com. Check us out. My show is on Spreaker, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all those good spots. Let's get to it. All right. So on the heels of last week, one of the stories that I really love um, talking about in NFL history is Super Bowl three and how an AFL team toppled one of the greatest teams at the time that was supposed to just run through the New York Jets were the Baltimore Colts and the epitome of what we're going to talk about today pretty much happened in that game. The AFL, the American Football League that was began uh, that began play in 1960. And I wanted to talk about that. I, I struggled on what the next topic was going to be. And it just hit me uh, reading my book, Lamar Hunt. Let's tell the story, especially on the heels of those Colts and the Jets and, and the story that ended the show last week. If you didn't listen to it, go back and check it out. 18 weeks. It was about the NFL schedule. Um, every Tuesday, it's Tuesday. Every Wednesday, the show drops. I'm recording right now. Uh, always me and my squeaky t- uh, squeaky chair. We're here on every Tuesday. The show drops every Wednesday on all of those podcast platforms. So getting right to it. Who watched the movie Dodgeball? Got some young people out there. I love Dodgeball, one of the funniest movie, movies I've ever watched. And right now, if, if you can see me, eventually I'm going to go to video. I'm wearing my Average Joe's t-shirt. If you don't know about the movie Dodgeball, it's basically um, 
a gym that's run down called Average Joe's. They're trying to save their gym because the gym across the street, Globo Gym, the bad guys, the, the guy White Goodman is wanting to take over and knock it down and make it a parking lot or something like that. Well, basically, at the end of the movie, um, they play dodgeball for the right to win all of this money. And that money is going to save Globo Gym. I mean, save Average Joe's and Globo Gym. They come with their dodgeball team trying to basically block them from winning all the cabbage. Right. Well, Globo Gym had a saying. We're better than you, and we know it. Very funny movie. Check it out if you haven't ever watched it. That's the NFL in 1959. We're better than you, and we know it. They are pretty much the monopoly on professional football. So that brings us here. 1959. What was going on in 1959 in the NFL? Well, the league was in its 40th season. They had 12 teams, the East and West um then the nfl commissioner burt bell he's he's manning things and and keeping it all together and unfortunately in october 11th of that year he actually died of a heart attack remember burt bell was i believe he was the owner and the man who ran the philadelphia eagles he's watching them play against the pittsburgh steelers and he has a heart attack they're at the game, and he dies in a nearby hospital there. Franklin Field is where everything went down. The Baltimore Colts, um, I even printed up pro football reference. Love it. All the standings. You have the New York Giants, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, the Washington football team, out of respect, the Chicago Cardinals. They stink. That's in the East. The West, the Baltimore Colts, the Chicago Bears, the Green Bay Packers, the San Francisco 49ers, the Detroit Lions, and the lowly Los Angeles Rams. Rookie of the year, Boyd Dowler, Green Bay Packers, passing leader, and NFL MVP, the AP MVP, Johnny Unitas. And they won their second championship in a row against the New York Giants, back-to-back champs. And we're here. So, oh, also, Vince Lombardi, that was his first year as a head coach. After they went through, the Green Bay Packers had just fired Ray McLean, who was 110-1 the year before. Lombardi comes in, instant uh, success. They are 7-5 in his first year. We already know the dynasty that it turns into. We'll get to that later. Then enter Lamar Hunt. Lamar Hunt is the son of an oil tycoon, H.L. Hunt. And Hunt is an American businessman, young guy. And that the year uh the age of 26 years old he basically wanted to own an nfl franchise now this guy he came from smu um and was a backup running back and wide receiver to one raymond berry who was on those baltimore coast teams really interesting there um but in 1959 he decides yes he wants to have an nfl franchise he wants to start up his own and so what does he do? And I'm referencing my book, my history book that I've been deep diving in. It's called America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written by Randy O. Williams and that Hall of Fame wide receiver, Jerry Rice. And I'm referencing this book because, I mean, I, I dug deep and I did some research and even some, some of the information that I got. I, I mean, I'm learning things left and right. And with this, 
In early 1959, Lamar Hunt, who wants this team, he spoke with George Hallis, who was the chairman of the NFL Expansion Committee, about, okay, hey, can I get a team? And he also spoke with Commissioner at the time, Burt Bell, this is before he passed away, obviously, about the possibility of putting a new franchise in Dallas. They both said, we're not interested in expansion right now. So you have 12 teams already. They're not interested. This is 1959, people. Keep that year in your head. They don't want a fran- They don't want any more franchises. We're good. We're good where we are. So, since I can't start up my uh, my own team, how about I buy one that's already existing? Enter those Chicago Cardinals, who in 1959, as a matter of fact, they finished at the bottom. I think they had losing seasons. In six of the last 10 years. In 59, they were 2-10. and 10. They're owned by a man by the name of Walt or Walter Wolfner. So Hunt, he flies to Miami where Wolfner lives and talks to him about acquiring his club. Basically, he said no. Now, nah, there's other people that's in, interested, but no. And this club is losing money left and right. I have money and I can save this franchise and we can do something, right? Well, eventually that franchise does end up in St. Louis as the Cardinals. Um, but since he's basically told he can't start his own team and he can't buy an existing team, so the light bulb goes off. Start your own franchise. Start, start your own league, as a matter of fact. He's on the plane He's doodling, and from my understanding, the things that he wrote down that day on the plane are are preserved, and they're put in um, some Hall of Fame-type setting. I, I really don't remember where, but he draws out the plans, the initial plans for the American Football League or the AFL. Then he says, okay, so I have to find some other investors, some guys who want to invest in teams who want to have teams in this league as well he starts off titans fans with your old owner 36 year old at the time bud adams big money bud so bud says i'm in and then they go and they find a couple of other guys six more to be exact to buy in on this thing and that includes a name uh, a guy by the name of, of max winter who ends up being the president of the Minnesota or Minneapolis franchise. More on him later. So once they get all of these teams together, and at one point they only had four with no TV contracts, and the other thing is is that many of these teams, did they didn't have scouts. They had coaches without any professional coaching experience, not a whole lot. And two that had none, which turned out to be two of their best coaches in the league. Lou Saban of the Boston Patriots. Yes, the Boston Patriots, not the New England Patriots. Not yet. And Hank Stram, who both of these guys, they were mostly college guys. And they came from college. And now they are NFL head coaches. So, and there's to note, Houston, Dallas, Denver, Los Angeles, New York, and Minneapolis. These are some of the teams that started it off. Then you had Buffalo, Boston, and then Oakland. 
Tell you about that in a second. The commissioner would be Joe Foss, who is a World War II veteran, a well-liked guy who was a pretty decent commissioner from my understanding. Go back to Minneapolis. So the NFL, they already don't like the fact that there's a, yet another professional league that's trying to basically, I guess the best way to say this is to compete with them. And keep this in mind, players, players are the key. So everybody's trying to get players, players from college, some of the best of the best players, right? So the NFL in the beginning already had to fight for players, college guys. They didn't want to play professional football yet in the beginning because what was professional football? Basically, the way that the NFL is looking at that or the AFL is the way that college looked at the NFL. You would think that they would have learned their lesson. I guess not. Well, there were some things that were going on with Commissioner Burt Bell anyway. The U.S. Congress was basically trying to find out from Commissioner Bell why the NFL, the National Football League, shouldn't be prosecuted for being a monopoly. All the leagues before had been stamped out. The last one being the All-American Football Conference, the AAFC, where the Cleveland Browns came from, right? And basically, he hears about Lamar Hunt and his plans to start his own league. So... He basically asked Hunt if he could announce that emerging league at those congressional hearings. And he basically claimed to welcome them in to cooperate with the AFL, which he was lying. Obviously, he was doing this to keep himself out of trouble. So and, and even reading in the book and doing my studying, Hunt knew that he was being used by the NFL and Commissioner Bell. He was being used for that purpose to keep U.S. the Justice Department off his back. They didn't want to have anything to do with the AFL. They didn't want any competition at all. So much so, even after this, George Hallis and Bell, well, George Hallis is the one that is uh, written that he did the contacting of both Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams and offered them NFL franchises. All of a sudden, they want to offer them some NFL franchises. Basically, if you just scrap your plans and say, we're not going to do this league, we will give you two NFL franchises. We'll bring you in. You will be teams 13 and 14. They said, nah, we're good. No thanks. I think we'll go ahead and, and move on with it. What did the NFL do? Not only... Did they do this with the Minneapolis team? They basically at the 11th hour, is it at the 11th hour? Basically at the last minute, they swooped in and Max Winter, the president of what would become the Minnesota Vikings, switched to the NFL. Not only that, you darn Cowboys fans, in 1960, the year that the AFL was supposed to be kicking off and would kick off, then they decide to bring in another expansion team, the Dallas Cowboys. Lamar Hunt's team was the Dallas, the Dallas Texans, the second incarnation of the Dallas Texans. So they put them right there in the same, they played in the same stadium, as a matter of fact, the Cotton Bowl. They played their home games 
in the same stadium. Now, what's ironic, in the first, I believe it was three years, the Dallas Texans basically outdrew the Dallas Cowboys. Remember, the Cowboys were terrible when they first came in. As a matter of fact, I also read this. Hunt and the AFL, they offered Tom Landry, who was then a assistant coach with the New York Giants, a head coaching position at one of their teams. He declined. Well, he took the Dallas Cowboys job, didn't he? 33 years later, 32 years later, you know, <laughs> all of these Super Bowl appearances, which that was great. That's fine. But the Dallas Texans, they stuck around. And in 1963, Lamar Hunt moved his team to Kansas City and renamed them the Chiefs. But it's really, really funny how the NFL just, they really tried sabotaging, literally sabotaging the AFL. They did the exact same thing, like I said, with the Minnesota franchise. There was a group of investors. It wasn't a senior guy, single person that was named. They had two key guys. As a matter of fact, there was F. Wayne Valley and Chet Soda. They were the head guys in that investment group for that Minnesota franchise. So in its place, they were awarded the Oakland Raiders. Boom. There you go. 1960. Here come the Raiders. So the Cowboys, the Vikings and the Raiders, as well as the other seven AFL teams came into the fold. And that's where we begin. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Start a journey, not a fad. Kick off your fitness journey with up to $500 off Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, or Tread packages. Choose the package that will take your training to the next level with accessories like our cycling shoes, heart rate band, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. Join now and you'll see why 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All access membership separate. Offer ends January 8th, 2023. Excludes Bike, Bike Plus, and Tread Basics. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. In that. So the original eight were set. The Boston Patriots, the Buffalo Bills, the Denver Broncos, the Houston Oilers, the LA Los Angeles Chargers, the New York Titans, Oakland Raiders, and last but not least, the Dallas Texans. And September 9th of 1960, first game ever on a Friday night, the Denver Broncos kick off against the Boston Patriots. Ugly game. Made, it would make your eyes bleed. 13-10 uh, win. But what was key was television. It was the first AFL game. And it was not just for football, I found out later. It was also television was key for both professional basketball and wrestling. In 1960, with the aid of producer, and I'm hoping I'm saying this guy's name right, Rooney or Rune Arledge of ABC, the AFL signed a five-year, $10 million deal. So those kind of things will legitimize the league. TV deals legitimize the league. Now, whether they stay that way is going to be totally up to the product that is put on the field. It was a long road. And again, in my opening statements, 
look, you heard at the beginning of the show, they played in bad, rundown stadiums with no grass. You're practicing on playgrounds, in sandlots, and in schoolyards. A professional football team. I watched a video on the AFL, and they talked about the the the, the terrible socks that they wore. You see those throw those throwback uniforms that they use um, during the season every now and then, like the Denver Broncos, those old brown uniforms and those ugly socks. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I know the NFL has some terrible uniforms too. Don't ask me about those Pittsburgh Steelers Bumblebee jerseys. Terrible. But they had some bad uniforms. They could, a quarterback couldn't even raise his arm to, to throw the footballs. He had to cut the armpits out. It, it was pretty bad. But things did get better. One thing about the league was that it was innovative. It was not the NFL. The NFL was a little bit more like, I guess, like being in the Army, you know, straight-laced and crew-cut. And I'm not saying that AFL teams weren't this the same, but the play on the field was wide open. It's like watching football now, passing, not watching Navy and Army hand the football off 50 times a game. It wasn't like that. They threw the football, run-and-shoot offenses. I mean, just ask, oh, well, he's not around. He's not with us anymore. Sid Gilman, the head coach of the San Diego Chargers, was the L.A. Chargers, then the San Diego Chargers. They moved early, too. They threw the football. They put the ball in the air. It was awesome to watch. It was better on the eyes. It was more entertaining. It was more exciting. They put names on the backs of the jerseys. I mean, you see Notre Dame running around even to this day without putting names on the jerseys. They want to stick with that tradition. Tradition That's fine. But they did some things. They did it differently. They were doing two-point conversions back then as well. Very innovative. Very innovative. And eventually they did get some newer stadiums. And they did get... Um, better uniforms and things like that. But one of the other keys, like I said, going back to it, was all about the battle for players. The stories on how these two leagues, the NFL and the AFL, battled it out for players, just it just blows my mind, the, the lengths that they would go to. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of how colleges recruit. And whether they were paying guys under the table or just straight up or giving them a job and saying, you don't have you'll get paid this much money, but you don't have to show up but one day a week. But we'll give you a full week's pay. It was that kind of covert type thing that was going on between both of these leagues. But you have to understand that. Players were going to be your product. If you have terrible players on the field, you fans out there that have terrible teams you know it makes your eyes bleed to watch your team play if you have terrible players you're not going to watch it so the afl was going to have to step this game up and get some of these good players i will listen to bud adams tell the story about how they started off trying to recruit or or go after players even in the draft and a draft in itself was interesting because both leagues were dra- had two separate drafts that's crazy. You get draft twice, drafted twice. Not I'm playing football and I get drafted baseball. No, I'm getting drafted by the NFL and the AFL. Which one are you going to choose? But Adams told the story about you know, with no scouts and no real football knowledge, 
They were buying football magazines. Imagine showing up to Kroger's or CVS or Walmart or whatever, Walgreens, and you buy a Street and Smith's or an Athlon magazine. And you go to that the first couple of pages and you see the All-American team and the first team, second team, third team All-American or the All-SEC team. That's how they were selecting players. He said that they looked at the top 10 of each, each position and that's how they drafted. That's how they went after players. And it was about the money. That's, that's wild the way they had. To, but that's, that's what they had to do. It's like blue chips. Y'all remember, I don't know if anybody remembers the movie Blue Chips. You know, I'm not even going to go there. Dick Nolte, Shaq, Penny Hardaway, just watch it. Uh, some dirty stuff was going on for them to try to get some of these players, but it was all about paying them. We'll get to the money part later. Again, drafting players twice and players having to choose where they're going to go, well, it got really covert. They were hiding players in hotels and putting bodyguards or what they would call, quote-unquote, babysitters outside of the front doors of these nice hotel rooms. Imagine, if you will, go back, what, about a month ago, the NFL draft. Everything's virtual right now for the most part. Some people are showing up to the draft. But you see the cameras that are set up by ESPN in everybody's house. They have just their small families or they have families and friends, you know, 20, 30 people deep. Well, this was what the NFL was doing for some of these college players, and they were hiding them in these hotels room, hotel rooms, providing good food and music and, you know, a party-type atmosphere or whatever. But they basically, it was almost like, what, they put you in the, in Witsick, in the Witness Protection, uh, <laughs> the Witness Protection Program, and you can't leave. And here's the other thing that was crazy. They would not let any AFL scouts or coaches or anything, anybody associated with that league to even show up into a hotel or walk down the hallway where they knew where someone was staying. Great story. Otis Taylor, Hall of Fame wide receiver, ended up with the Kansas City Chiefs. If anyone knows, knows this name, I mentioned his name probably about five, six shows ago, long time ago. Lloyd Wells. African-American pretty much was a scout for the Kansas City Chiefs. He had a plug into the HBCUs of the day back in the 60s. Because remember, they were just now getting around to trying to get some of the black talent, African-American talent, if you didn't go to Michigan State, UCLA, or name that big college team. He had a plug. Prairie View A&M is where Otis Taylor went. They knew the NFL wanted him, and so did the AFL. Well, a simple story he's hot he's being hid in a hotel with the lockdown security on the outside of his door lord wells learns where he is pulls up in the car and basically knocks on the window he sneaks otis taylor out of the window i guess he convinced him hey look you know how about the chiefs how about it man you know come on give us a shot how about it? you know Sneaks him out of the window. They get in Lloyd Wells' car, drive all the way to Kansas City where he ends up signing. Magical. But they're going after some of the best players. Billy Cannon in 1960, the first year of the AFL, he is the Heisman Trophy winner for the LSU Tigers. Clearly the best player in football at the time, right? Well, I'm guessing sometime between his last game, uh, his final game, and... You know, somewhere late in 1959, 
the LA Rams had already threw some cash at him. $30,000 with a $10,000 bonus as a matter of fact. Who is, I believe, the president of the LA Rams? This is just before he was elected as the new NFL commissioner after Burt Bell passed away, Pete Rozelle. Rozelle signs Billy Cannon to this contract. Well, I guess he didn't legitimately sign, although they did have a choice still. But Adam shows up after the game, signed him under the goalpost, gave him $3,000 more, $33,000, and $10,000 bonus. He's a Houston Oiler. Wow. Just like that. That's exactly how cutthroat it had to be. If you were going to be a viable league and you were going to last a long time, you were going to have to be out there. You had to be a salesman. And it was great that they had these businessmen that had that money. Because if you were broke, there was no way you were going to get players. That probably explains why the Jets weren't that great in the beginning. Anyway, the, the list of players that were in the AFL, I mean, from the beginning, you had almost anyone that was trying out. Anyone who played a lick of football in high school and maybe some college but not all of those guys were very good. But then you did get some good players. You got some former NFL players or castoffs, right? You had players, some of them, some of them became Hall of Famers. They were some of the greatest players of all time. We've already talked about this gentleman, Lynn Dawson, who was a quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. He spent a couple years in the league in the NFL before he signed with the Chiefs. He was playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns as what, a second, third stringer? At quarterback before he ended up with Kansas City, Ben Davison. He ended up being a great defensive player, defensive end for the Oakland Raiders. He played for Green Bay and uh, the Washington football team. George Blanda, yeah, old George who didn't retire till he was 48 years old. He had been playing in 1975, he retired. He had been playing football since 1949. God, he was Tom Brady before he was Tom Brady, but without that many championships. He was with the Chicago Bears before he went to the Houston Oilers and then eventually with the Raiders. Both Don Maynard, Hall of Famer, and Jack Kemp, pretty good quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, were both on the New York Giants before they ended up on their respective teams, the Jets and the Bills. Don Maynard, by the way, he played in that the first overtime game of all time, which, which was that 1958 championship between the Colts and the Giants. He received the first sudden death kickoff and he fumbled it by the way yeah anyway everybody's not perfect but they also grabbed some players that would like you said they were guys who were drafted try twice you ever heard of lance allworth he was drafted by the 49ers in the nfl and the oakland raiders of the afl who traded his rights to the san diego chargers buck buchanan was drafted by the both the new york giants and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Giants drafted him high. And the Chiefs drafted him low. But he went with the AFL. And a lot of that had to do with racism. And the fact that. Not saying that it wasn't a problem in the, in the AFL. It was even more of a problem in the NFL. That's basically what he was saying. Jim Otto. Like we said. Minnesota. Hall of Fame center. He was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings. He ended up, his rights that year ended up going to the Oakland Raiders because they they made, they got those um, 
that they had those rights they ended up with the player cool matt snell running back for the new york jets he was also drafted by the other new york team the giants so there you go but speaking of players you know they don't play for free no matter what league they play in lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. We'll talk about that next. Okay, so the New York Titans, they were a pretty average team. 19 and 23 within their first three years before a man who had entertainment ties, guy with some money named Sonny Werblin, bought them in 1963. By 1965, they're drafting a 21-year-old quarterback out of the University of Alabama by the name of Joe Willie Namath. Bidding war. At this time, Joe Namath signed for an astronomical amount of money for the time, especially for an athlete, $427,000. Of course, that doesn't, I mean, that's a game check for guys these days, but we're talking about 1965. But that was big money then. Pete Goglak, who was a kicker for the Buffalo Bills and was one of the key players in winning championship games or going to back-to-back championship games in 1964 and 65, he ended up disgruntled over his contract. He thought that he could wait things out and another AFL team would pick him up and sign him for more money. Didn't happen. He goes over to the New York Giants, the first AFL player to do so. And the Giants wanted him. That there was something in that video that I watched over the weekend that Al Davis said. I forgot who he was speaking to. But he said that when you basically, when you see the NFL is starting to take our players, I think we just merged. He was a prophet. He was a prophet because the next year, some things would start to move. Remember, the NFL was looking down at the AFL. They didn't like them. They were doing everything to try to stamp them out. But by this time, as a matter of fact, in 1965, the AFL had signed an even bigger television deal with NBC this time, a five-year, $36 million contract. That legitimized the league, period. Now, five years, 10 million, okay, that was one thing from ABC. 
But after that contract was up, NBC, which if I'm thinking correctly, was the television mogul of the time, at least one of them, obviously. But for them to sign you, NBC, that made you legit. You were not only just a threat, you were probably going to be there to stay. And I'm sure that the NFL's ears were perking up. But going back to the players and the money, not only were you seeing players like rookies, Joe Namath getting this kind of money, there were more guys starting to get even bigger money as the years went by, going up to six hundred dollars to $700,000. Veterans did not like that very much. And on top of that, owners were growing concerned. Okay, so we're having to bid for all of these players. We're having to fight for these players. And we're having to pay out of our pocket, coming out of the pocket, to get the best of the best. We don't want to be broke. And then on top of that, it wasn't exactly the best look for us to keep doing that. Then on top of that, there's more player movement that was on the horizon. Roman Gabriel, who was a quarterback for the Rams, was looking at signing with the Oakland Raiders. John Brody, of the a quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, as well as Hall of Fame tight end Mike Dick of the Chicago Bears, they were looking at Houston, going over to Houston. These are NFL players, not just any players either. These are good players. I didn't know about this. Paul Horning, the, great, the Green Bay Packers great running back, he was looking at signing with the New York Jets. And all, like I said, it's not. it wasn't a good look with the money exchanging hands, and then you start to see players wanted to flip-flop leagues so nobody's holding anything down this eventually led to a secret meeting want to hear about it here go so lamar hunt and tech shram of the dallas cowboys right gm president i believe of the dallas cowboys correct me if i'm wrong they decided to meet at the Texas Rangers statue in the Dallas airport at Love Field. This meeting moved that night to Tex Ram's car in the parking lot of, of Love Field, where they basically discussed merger, the details of a merger. That same, eventually, after that meeting was over, Hunt ended up flying out to Houston, where Al Davis was going to be the elected commissioner. Because, and if my timeline is correct, this happened, I think, on April the 6th, this meeting, around that time. Because that's that day, on April 6th, the old commissioner had just resigned, Joe Foss. And from my reading, once again, my reading, my studying, I basically learned that the AFL wanted somebody who was I guess you wanted a go-getter and, and a tougher guy. Even though Joe Foss was well-liked, Al Davis was a no-nonsense guy. If you remember Al Davis before he died and throughout the years of the NFL, he went to battle with the league over a lot of different things. He didn't play. Okay, just win, baby. Not just win, baby, but with business and with his football team, the Oakland Raiders being the owner of the Oakland Raiders, he was a no-nonsense guy. And even at 36 years old, him being elected the new commissioner of the AFL, they needed somebody who was going to be able to go into no negotiations with the NFL as well as maintaining the present league, someone that was going to get it done, right? 
They needed somebody that was tougher. Keep this in mind. The great equalizer in all of business is always going to be money. If your pockets are hurting and mine are hurting, then we're going to have to come to some kind of a compromise. What happened? June 8th, the next year, next summer, June 8th, 1966, NFL commissioner, because he was elected <laughs> as the commissioner of the NFL, Pete Rozelle announced the two leagues had basically reached an agreement to merge by 1970. And at the end of the seasons, they would have those next four years, those next four seasons, the two league champs would meet in what would be called the AFL-NFL championship game. Now, as a little footnote, a, a note, where did the name Super Bowl came from? come from? Lamar Hunt. Lamar Hunt came up with that name. He said that this is something I watched years ago. You know those super balls or those rubber balls that bounce like super ball, super high. He said, well, how about the last, the last game, the final game? We'll call that the Super Bowl. That's where that name came from. And obviously, it has stuck to this day. And then there's the new league structure. The new league structure is pretty much a mirror of what we have today. So the National Football League by 1970 would have a National Football Conference, NFC, and the American Football Conference, AFC. Basically, they put all the AFL teams in the American Conference, the AFC. And they moved three present NFL teams over. And those teams would be Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and, chuckle, Baltimore. They would have to move to the AFL. Uh, well, the AFC. And they had to play against those AFL teams that they talked so bad about. Anyway, I'm sorry. The NFL brought 16 teams to the table. And then you had the other 10 of the AFL. Totaling 26, they split it down the middle. 13 teams for each conference. And every division, Western, Midwestern, and Eastern. Most divisions had four teams, where the Eastern divisions both had five. That's what we had. That's what we had, the original. And the original eight, of course, if you listened last week, the Miami Dolphins came along in 1966. In 1968, the, the Cincinnati Bengals, they were introduced. And in the NFL, 1967, the New Orleans Saints were born. And here we are. All right, so we're going to wrap this show up. And yes, y'all know what time it is. It's, it's going to be a short one, but story time with Uncle Mike. Get your blankets. Get your pillows. Okay, so after the league merged, I think that this was really, really interesting the way everything kind of came together in the end for the AFL because this is, we're talking about the come up on the AFL. And on top of that, we're going to name you some of those champions as well. But before we go to that, the Super Bowl, the first Super Bowl was in 1966. They announced the merger that summer. There was pressure. We talked a little bit about this last week. But the Green Bay Packers, they ran away with the, the first two Super Bowls. They beat down Kansas City 35 to 10, even after a close game at halftime, 14 to 10. The Chiefs didn't score anymore. Green Bay played Oakland the next year in Super Bowl II. And let's keep this in mind, the Green Bay Packers were aging. Again, we have 
the end of a dynasty in 1967 and they went out on top yes Barstar threw more interceptions than touchdowns that year there was no more Paul Horning and Jim Taylor their Hall of Fame running backs they were replaced by pretty much a mishmash of different runners okay some rookies and a couple of guys that just they didn't play very much while Taylor and Horning were there but they still beat the Oakland Raiders handily 33 to 14 it wasn't even that close they uh oakland scored a last touchdown there in the fourth quarter late in the fourth quarter the game was over with of course my favorite game the jets and the colts where the jets came in as 17 point underdogs to the baltimore colts the colts again they were supposed to be the greatest team to the, uh, of that era they were 15 and 1 they were outscoring teams by 18 points per game and the only loss that they had that year was to the cleveland browns who they took it to them they beat them down 34 to nothing in the nfl championship game but what's crazy about that game yes joe namath with the famous guarantee yeah we're going we're going to win the game i guarantee it he didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter the mvp didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter i've always maintained this that running back out of ohio state that did play with one paul warfield he was drafted by the New York Giants as well as the New York Jets. He should have been the MVP. He should have been the MVP of that game. He scored the one touchdown they did have. Other than that, it was field goals, but they controlled that game. And it didn't hurt, well, that the defense for the Jets picked off Morrill and Unitas four times. Earl Morrill threw four picks in that game. Johnny Unitas came in to try to save the day. He threw one as well. But... Here's where the story is. And I thought this was really, really funny. And I have to reference yet another book. And this was my sporting news, the complete Super Bowl book, one that I had years ago and I had to order again on Amazon. I love this book so much. So this story is surrounding the head coach of the New York Jets, because once Sonny Werblin bought the Jets in 1963, he changed their name from the Titans to the New York Jets. This is the New York Jets head coach, Weeb Eubank, Hall of Famer, right? And I quote from the book, savoring his finest moment. This is after the game. Eubank regaled the crowd with an account of an incident that occurred prior to the game. As Shula, Don Shula, and Colts owner, Carol Rosenblum, strolled around the field in their customary pregame conference they encountered Eubank and I quote we're having a victory party at my home after the game Rosenblum informed Eubank quote you know where it is I want you and Lucy his wife uh, Mrs. Eubank to come on over and of course Eubank says Lucy and I couldn't make it we've got a party of our own and I'd rather be here well obviously that, a nice burn there for him but it was really funny that Rosenblum still had that party. And I think I talked about this last week. And at that party, Don Shula, I believe he was present. He said, I have already fired a coach that has won two championships for me, which was Eubank, who was the Colts head coach of the 58 and 1959 team that won back to back. Of course, Rosenblum did fire the guy a couple of years later after he missed the playoffs. Hmm. But what's ironic is that 
Shula, of course, he left to go coach an old AFL team, the Miami Dolphins. Yes, that first year in 1970, uh, after the merger, the Colts did beat the, I think they, yeah, they think they beat them 34 to nothing at Memorial Stadium at home. They beat the Dolphins in that first game that they played with Don Shula being back. But after that, it was a mini dynasty for the Miami Dolphins. They went to three straight Super Bowls. And what's also ironic is that Earl Morrill, that MVP that took over for the injured Johnny Unitas, who was who had his elbow tore up in the preseason. He was the MVP for the Colts in 1968. He was the one who led the Miami Dolphins for a majority of that season, even into the playoffs, because their starting quarterback, Bob Greasy, had I think he had fractured his ankle in like the third game or something like that. And he was the one who carried them through most of that, that season. Of course, the Miami Dolphins, they beat my Pittsburgh Steelers the, a week after the immaculate reception, as a matter of fact. The Pittsburgh Steelers in 72, they, they had won their first playoff game ever that, that day. So go figure. But it's, it's so funny how things come around for teams and it came around even more so for the Kansas City Chiefs the next year. It was even bigger for Kansas City in Super Bowl IV when they beat the Minnesota Vikings 23-7 in that game. They were 14-point underdogs going into that game. And this was the last AFL game that was played as an AFL team. They had their 10-year patches on because it was their 10th year, their 10th, 10th season. And they were playing and got vindication against the team that backed out on them at the last minute and jumped over to the NFL. And it seemed to me like it just never would leave the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, they had success in the 70s, but they were over. Literally, they lost four Super Bowls. They lost Super Bowl four. They lost Super Bowl eight to the Miami Dolphins and Don Shula. They lost Super Bowl nine to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the team that pretty much replaced them in the AFL those original eight, the Oakland Raiders, they beat the crap out of Minnesota, Oakland did, in Super Bowl XI. Just ironic. Just, just so ironic how all that stuff just comes around. So the Oakland Raiders, they got their revenge too, I guess, so to speak. I mean, they were the, they were the team that replaced the Minnesota Vikings at the last minute. But the AFL, they had some really, really great seasons and um very exciting football to have watched for the 1960s. I'd much rather had watched an AFL game with all of that passing. I understand the early years were probably eye bleeders. Those games were probably not very watchable. But as you go forward, those games obviously got a lot better. And the fact that the AFL alone had 33 players in the Hall of Fame, except for one that played both AFL and NFL. One player played his entire career in the in the AFL, all 10 of his years. Buffalo Bills guard, Billy Shaw. He played every year for the AFL. And as far as championships are concerned, you can almost go year by year. The Houston Oilers, they won the first two. The Dallas Texans won it in 62. San Diego, they won a single championship 
Buffalo did go back to back in 64 and 65. And of course, Kansas City and Oakland, the New York Jets and the Kansas City Chiefs, those were the those were the winners there in the last five seasons. So there were some really, really good teams that came through. And if you really look at even the beginning of the Super Bowl era, there was some dominance. The Oakland Raiders were in that around that time, even though we look at the Pittsburgh Steelers as being the dynasty, the Oakland Raiders, at least up to 1977, were the winningest franchise during that time period. So they had their squads. The Miami Dolphins, yes, they did acquire, what, a couple of players that played in the OFL, uh, in, in the NFL, excuse me, but they had put together a championship-level team to go into those early 70s and hit three Super Bowls in a row, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And football is football. It is. I understand that they didn't start off with the greatest of players in the beginning, but at the same time, when you have guys like Lance Allworthy, Bobby Bell, Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Larry Zonka, Lynn Dawson, Ken Houston, Larry, uh, Charlie Joyner, Joyner, Floyd Little, Don Maynard. They had players, man. They really did. They just needed a chance. They just needed a chance. And so that other league, they got respect. And it wasn't so much. I mean, it didn't end well for White Goodman. We're better than you. And we know it. Now nah, it didn't end well for the NFL. And I'm glad. Those first two Super Bowls, okay, yeah, that was the dynasty of the time. But those last two... We got your attention now, buddy. All right, that's it. So, please continue to listen to this show. Download it, subscribe, like, tell your friends and your family. You can catch the Behind the Mic podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Tell your friends, tell your family. You better listen. I'm out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.